As we've been uh, working our way through this uh, series about our mission, vision, and values, uh, we're diving into this idea to make Jesus and make him known, and we move forward into that today, into our vision statement. So if you have your scriptures, open to John chapter 14, either in the digital version or the, or the ancient technology that looks like this. Um, and we're going to focus on a passage of scripture in John chapter 14, and then also in Mark chapter 3. <clears throat> The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the SPCA. Are all of you familiar with the SPCA? We drive past, perhaps, the BC SPCA building over, just over, over here. Let's, uh, let's dissect, terrible pun, but let's dissect the words or the, the acronym of the SPCA. The Society, which is an organization of people uh, united around a common purpose or activity. In BC, there are countless societies if you go and search online, you can go on a Government of BC website, and there's like multiple pages of different societies and associations. Uh, the, the Alzheimer's Society of BC is one, the John Howard Society, and you've heard that term in many different ways, right? There's even actually, if you're British, uh, from in the UK, you can join something called the UK Roundabout Appreciation Society. So if you're really excited about roundabouts, there is a place for you. So, check them out, yeah. But uniquely, the SPCA is focused on, it's a group of people focused on the prevention, you know, the, the stopping and deterring of cruelty, abuse and brutality to animals. Animals get this special treatment. Now listen, uh, how did the SPCA start? The SPCA, it may surprise you, was started by a group of mostly evangelical Christians. A few pastors, lawyers, and a British politician named William Wilberforce met at Old Slaughter's Coffee House, which is, again, is another unfortunate reference in the story. <laughs> Old Slaughter's Coffee House, let's go save the animals, right? Uh, uh, in London, England, June the 16th, 1824, this group met together and established a society that would influence culture toward a humane treatment of animals. For Wilberforce, this was rooted in his conversion as a follower of Jesus in his mid-twenties. In his mid-twenties, following his conversion, Wilberforce wrote this, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, what's going on that the Reformation of Manners was needed in Britain in those days? Now, when we hear that, we think about what most parents think about is, boy, our home could use a Reformation of Manners. I mean, were, were, were there people in England not lifting their pinky finger when they drank tea? This must have been the great dilemma, right? Were forks disastrously in the wrong place at table settings? Okay. Now, what Wilberforce meant was that was a response to the manner of life that, had in, that, that British society had become in the late uh, 17th and into the 18th and early 19th centuries. We may have this idea when we think historically, since we're in 2019, that surely if there was an ever golden age of Christianity, it must have been the early 1800s in England. Uh, wrong. British culture was in shambles. It was not what you think it was. British culture was a disaster. Uh, historian and uh, Wilberforce 
Biographer Eric Metaxas points out that it's hard for us to appreciate how broken the culture of the early 19th century England was. 25% of women prostituted themselves, most by the age of 16. There was a disaster happening. The gin craze had ravaged England by the, late, by the end of the 18th century. And to be an enthusiast, and that's what deeply committed Christians were called, to be an enthusiast was to set oneself up for ridicule and mocking. And that's what happened uh, to Wilberforce. So he becomes alive in his faith in Christ, and a biblical vision begins to spur him that caused Wilberforce to labor 40 years for the legislative abolition of slavery in the British Empire. In many ways, the abolition of slavery in the British Empire would not have happened without the, the diligence and long-suffering of William Wilberforce. And the vote to abolish the slave trade in the, in the uh, British Empire happened three days within his death. It took him 40 years of ent entering new legislation every single year. So this Jesus-centered, holistic view of the world drove Wilberforce and he was awakened to a vision of life shaped by the redemption of Jesus Christ. And he did something, but he didn't do it alone. And so he worked out this vision in societies, in groups of like-minded people who banded together and were a fellowship in, as what we would say in Kelowna Gospel Fellowship Church's vision, co-creating communities. Now, we unpacked, as we said, our, our mission last week, which is to know Jesus and... Thanks for playing along. That's awesome. To know Jesus and make him known. Because we're invited to move from knowing about Jesus to knowing him. God has made us for himself, and he desires us to know him in Christ, who rescues us from sin, and that which breaks us off from God and from one another. And God wants us to know him as well. And so as we increasingly become, come to know Jesus, we then, like Ross the photocopier guy, are sent to make Jesus known in the homes that when the assignments in different spheres of life that God has placed us. And so today now we come to our vision and how we aim to make this happen because every group of people needs a way of living out the thing they're about. To say that we exist to know Jesus and make him known, that can be a little nebulous. What does that actually mean? We're just one of many churches in the Okanagan and around the world that actually all exist primarily. They may say it differently, but essentially every church exists to know Jesus and make him known. That's the purpose of the church. And so you, as a KGF family, articulated a new way of, of, of uh, being and striving in this direction over the last year before I ever came along. And you discern together the leading of the Spirit to a unique gospel fellowship expression of the glory of God in the world. And it's this vision to co-create communities where each of us is awakened and equipped to live out the unique calling God has for us. And so we're going to tackle this over the next couple of weeks. Today, this idea of co-creating communities, which can, seem, which can seem a little like, what does that actually mean? But as, at its most basic, and I think it's most biblical, we believe that the way God invites his church to know Jesus and make him known is through creative communities. And this is an awesome truth. This is actually a mind-bending idea. 
Because at the core of this is this idea that to co-create communities is to point to Jesus by giving tangible evidence of the kingdom of God in our time and place, in this moment of history that God has placed us in. You don't get to do anything about the history of the world. You just get to start to think about what it means to make history now. It's our turn. It's your turn. And Jesus actually comes to give us the fullness of what this means. So John chapter 14 is where I pointed you to earlier. Let's look at what Jesus says. He's in relationship here with his disciples. He's hanging out with them. John chapter 14, verse 5, he's just said uh, he's, going to make a, he's going to make a place for his followers that where he is, they can someday be. And then Thomas says, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know me, do know him and have seen him. Now, they're standing there scratching their heads, trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. Remember, we talked about Jesus is like, he has these layers that you start to know him, and then all of a sudden he's like, ah, but there's more, right? And so this is what they're discovering about Jesus. And Thomas wants to know how to get to the Father's house. How do we get to this place of eternal soul rest, this dwelling with God? And Jesus says, there's no set rules. There's not a moral code that will get you there. He makes the way exclusive to himself. I am the way. And so if you want to know the way, you have to know me. If you want to know what God is like, then look at me, he says. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, many are seeking a way through life, some ethical or philosophical or mystical path through this minefield we all live every day. And Jesus simply says, I'm the map. (laughs) I am him. Are you looking for what is true? Then know me. Are you looking for what life is? Then know me. To know me, he says, is to know the Father. To see me is to see him. Well, this does not actually satisfy the disciples. (laughs) Look at verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. You can feel for Philip because Philip's just getting really practical. He's He's just really practical. Okay, he's like, my cranium's bent. I don't get what you just said to Thomas, so let me just intersect here. It's like Thomas just like, go and doubt over there for a bit. I need to talk with Jesus. Jesus... Uh, let's just get a little more simple. Just show us the Father and we'll be good. (laughs) That's all we want. Could you just like, just crack open the clouds there and just go, yep, see up there, just a little to the left of the Big Dipper. Right there. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, anyone, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father and I are one. We're one in the family business. If you've chatted with me, You've chatted with him. 
This is a crazy thought. If you've chatted with him in the dark night of your soul or in the storm or in the temple where you were pleading for a Messiah, you chatted with me. When I do amazing works, it's the Father who's doing them. When the demons flee from me, they're fleeing from him. The works, verse 11, the works reveal that we are a co-creating community of unity and unbridled holiness revealing the kingdom of God. We are that. And then Jesus says the craziest thing ever, and we're going to read it really slowly so we don't miss it. Verse 12, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do, read it, even greater, okay, I meant it actually. Let's read it, okay? <laughs> and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. What on earth is he talking about? If knowing Jesus the Son is to know God the Father, and if the works of the Father are revealed in God the Son, then how can greater things happen if he leaves? It seems counterintuitive. How can anything greater happen if the greatest one is gone? And Jesus says it's actually very simple. Those who know and love him keep his commands and ways and thereby do the Father's will as part of the family. In other words, the great things of God don't decrease when Jesus leaves. No, they exponentially increase. Do you see it? It exponentially increases the covert revelation of the kingdom of God in the world. Because now the will and the witness of God explodes not through one, but through many. It's an incredible and transforming vision. Who asks Jesus to keep the kingdom of God those of us who ask the kingdom of God to come into this, into this world are those who now become the answer to the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But wait, uh, there's more. Okay? Look at verse, verses 15 to 17. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The spirit of truth will never leave the believer. In fact, even more marvelous, the spirit of God is within us. God will come to us. The truth that Jesus is will dwell in you. Oh. Our knowing of God and God's knowing of us and God knowing the world's great needs unite in sacred dance in you and then in us together. Now, this is heavenly and heady stuff, isn't it? Okay? It's like, whoo! Well, welcome to being human, 
okay? This is like, we're trying to understand God thoughts, and we're human beings, okay? You're not alone if you go like, I don't quite think I've grasped this. That's okay. So what's the big truth that Jesus is wanting us to know? Three main things. God is one co-creating holy community of Father, Son, and Spirit. Second, knowing Jesus is the way to know this holy God. Okay, so you may know about that holy God, but the only way to know him is through Jesus. And this holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, wants us to be like him. (laughs) Seriously, you saw what you looked like in the mirror this morning, okay? Holy God wants you to be like him. A co-creating community where his will comes alive exponentially on earth. That should make us lean forward in our seat, right? Jesus taught us to pray, as I said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the kingdom to be revealed in our geography and place and time. And so as Christians, there are sometimes these ideas that we have that that sometimes come from outside of us. And you may have heard this thing, well, Christians, they're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Pie in the sky kind of people. C.S. Lewis responded to that. He said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Wilberforce was heavenly minded and we're still living off his parliamentary coattails. We live still culturally on a borrowed life that was birthed over 150, 200 years ago living off a way of being, and as we, if we drift from that, we start to actually lose our way. And you can, point out to, you can point out many amazing co-creative works that have brought the kingdom to earth that exist precisely because of heavenly-minded people. Alcoholics Anonymous is one. Or how about the Salvation Army? Or the Mennonite Central Committee that our church is a part of? Or how about the YMCA? What does YM, what did the village people sing about, right? What, what does the YMCA stand for? The Young Men's Christian Association, birthed by George Williams, who sold cloth. He was a draper in 1844, banded together with 11 other people and decided to find a way that they could reach young men who were, who were drifting and lost in the slums and cities of England and developed the Young Men's Christian Association to bring them together so that their body, their mind, and their souls would be alive and well. That was the vision of the YMCA. Or how about Compassion. You may sponsor children. Where did that come from? Or what about Freedom's Door that our church is a part of in the city? And of course, the SPCA. These and more were co-creations of disciples who knew Jesus and sought to make him known. And our culture's increasingly earthly-mindedness is detaching us from the co-creative source. Even Christians, even us, 
Even us are no longer thinking like Christians in the world, but are more thinking as consumers and combatants. And it's sinful and it's wrong. It lacks a holy, co-creative, God-centered vision for the world. So let's summarize. When we say we have a vision to co-create communities, we're saying we're committed to exponentially express the will of this holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the reality of our geography and our generation. And we will do this by prioritizing creative communities where gifts and vocations and sexes and generations and nationalities together do what Jesus said the disciples would do, which is what? Greater things than even he did. There may be another Wilberforce right here. Or maybe, actually, there's just a Micah. So my son Micah uh, has been an example to me of what this can look like. A couple of years ago, he wanted to pull together a few friends for a ball hockey tournament and thereby create work for his parents and siblings. Uh, But this was not just about him and his friends. He wanted each team to have a mix of ages. And so he was in grade three. So include some kindergartners and grade ones and a few older ones to join in. And the winning team would eat ice cream from a thrift store cup. And this is it. This is the Morozhna cup. So if any of you have any Russian in your story, what does Morozhna mean? Ice cream. There, you just learned some Russian for the day. Morozhna is ice cream in Russian. And so this is the Morozhna Cup. Winning team gets to eat ice cream out of here. So pretty cool. Uh, Now the name of the cup comes from a larger vision. It wasn't just about hockey because, as I said, Morozhna means ice cream. And the tournament would tell the story of families in Ukraine who risked having their kids taken away from them and put in orphanages because they didn't know a better way to parent and live. And so Max and Anya were, these, were this Ukrainian couple that we knew who uh, our family got, became friends with, and they're serving these families in Ukraine, even today, probably right now, actually. They're meeting a church plant has emerged out of this work. And Micah got to know Max and Anya, and he loved them as his Ukrainian grand, uh, aunt and uncle. And he wanted the ball hockey tournament to help those families that they were working with go to a summer camp where they could learn a better way. And so in 2018, we pulled off this little co-creative vision and thrift store shopping and three teams, about 25 people gathered in our front yard and we did it in our driveway. This past year in June, 2019, we had to go to a larger parking lot. Many beyond our family started contributing time and money and gifts and cheering and six teams participated. And now it's landed in Kelowna. So, but this is what's amazing. Out of this little kid's vision, over $600 these kids have raised to help broken families go to camp where they can learn how to bring a little bit of heaven into their geography. And all that because this little kid just paid attention, even unknowingly, to the Spirit and formed a co-creative community that opened up a little cup of heaven. That's not rocket science. If a nine-year-old can marginally pull this off, There's a bunch of you in the room who can do even greater things. Now, God's wide and full and manifold and redeeming wisdom and creativity is being released into this time and this place. That's what the kids are talking about as they meet right now. And it's our turn. 
It's through the power of co-creative community, not individualism. And we gift, or sorry, we are gifted the honor. This is what we need to grasp. We, you and I, are gifted the honor of participating in the plan and purpose of the living God who wants us to know him and exponentially express heaven into history. And our vision is to work at that together more and more. Plan, succeed, fail. <laughs> Plan, succeed, fail. Right? Doesn't matter. And so let's land this centering and extremely tangible thought with a, with a very tangible example of holy experimentation. Go back to Mark chapter 3. Said we're going to go back to Mark, which hopefully some of you have been reading as we've worked our way through this series. And by the way, there are sermon notes and discussion question sheets available online for today's sermon and all the sermons in this series. You can go there and you find a spot for you as a, with a few others in a life group or on your family table or whatever to discuss. So Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. And these are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonergase, which means sons of thunder. They were just really loud guys, okay? Uh, and then there's verse 18, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, here's what we have to understand. Jesus actually had many followers. He had many disciples. But now when we say the disciples, how many do you usually think there were? Twelve. Okay? But there were many disciples, but Jesus chose a small group to really co-create commun the community of the king with. And it's crucial because the kingdom of God grows like a mustard seed through the expanding faith of small groups who know Jesus and make him known. And so we gather like this to declare God's praise and center on his word together. But here's the thing. This moment may center us, but this is not the center. Jesus is the center. And you need a small group who you are knowing him with and with whom you are co-creatively and uniquely making him known. We all need this. It's actually God's plan to infiltrate the world with heaven. Jesus calls these 12 to be with him. Come with me. So that he could set them loose for greater things. Do you see what he does? He calls them to be with him, not so that they would have like the cool rabbi to hang out with, but because he intended to set them loose. That he would send them with the same authority over the demonic spiritual world that he himself had. So his purpose was to give them the capacity to do the greater things that he said would eventually happen when he leaves. And so with the 12, Jesus is revealing a new way of being human. As A.B. Bruce, in his, he's got this classic book called The Training of the Twelve. Uh, A.B. Bruce calls this the union of opposites. <laughs> it's awesome. What a great term. That the disciples, this twelve, are a union of opposites. Because herein lies this great mystery. The world is full of societies and marches. We saw some this week in the news, right? There's great marches all over the world, actually, this week, where people come together because they like each other or they think a certain, the same way, they want to see something take place. 
But Jesus here intentionally creates a union of opposites where co-creating would be extremely difficult <laughs> and miraculous. He actually makes it the most difficult thing to pull off that you could imagine. How? Well, verses 16 to 19 there introduce a society most unlikely to succeed. You have fishermen and sets of brothers. And I'm sure those of you in this room who have brothers all get along marvelously with all of them. What could go wrong? And then there's Philip, who still wanted to see someone greater. There's Thomas, who will even doubt after the resurrection. There's political enemies like Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Now, the Zealots were a political movement within Judaism of the day who were bet and determined by even means of violence to destroy the Roman Empire and anybody who agreed with them. And what was Matthew's job before he became a follower of Jesus? Tax collector. So Jesus intentionally brings the tax collector and the tax hater and puts them together and says, watch this social experiment. Isn't that incredible? He puts them in the same space. This had less chance of succeeding than a tournament pulled off by a nine-year-old. Look around the room. Look at each other. Jesus is still calling people together, creating unions of opposites. It's what he does. We are called by him and for him. We don't, I want, to, I, want to, I want you to hear this. We don't choose a church fellowship because you like the songs or the coffee. You choose a church fellowship by the calling of God. We need each other. We need gifts that others have. We need perspectives that others have that we do not have. We need to learn how to forgive and how to love and how to serve and how to die to ourselves and how to be sent together. We are a fellowship because the king makes us a fellowship. He called us to himself. He called us to each other. And we co-create from that place. Jesus is the way to knowing the creative community of this holy God. And God's mission will advance through the co-creating communities who bring heaven to earth through a myriad of mustard seed dreams and obedience. And by the spirit of truth, greater things will be done for the glory of God through parliamentarians and flight attendants and photocopy repairmen and single moms and nine-year-olds and 74-year-old widows and even tax gatherers and tax haters. Welcome to the union of opposites. We got some work to do. Let's pray. Lord, I, can, I confess, I don't, I don't know if you have a good plan sometimes. <laughs> I know my heart. I know how self-centered I can be. I know uh, how challenging it can be to break out of comfort zones. Thanks for Ross this morning, his willingness to do that in front of us and to encourage us. God, there, there, there's so many wandering around looking for family. There's people who are drowning asking for you to pull them up out of the water. And you have put us together as a fellowship, a union of opposites. This is your plan. 
that the co-creative working of your disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit through surrendered lives who seek your kingdom and your righteousness above all things. Lord, this is your plan. And we humble ourselves before you and we say, God, can you? Yes, you can. You can do more than we can ask or imagine. Jesus, you, we believe your word. You will do greater things. You have proven that you are alive and you continue to do that. And oh God, we need that again. The city needs it. Our neighborhoods need it. Our homes need it. This country needs it. This world needs it. This world needs you. So rescue us from our platitudes. Oh God, rescue us from our platitudes and bring us to a place of surrender, of co-creating community where we are not just talking about you, but we're actually acting like you because that's your plan. Help us, oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. This is who you are, church, and it's exciting. Would you stand? I just want to bless you as you go this morning. Please hang out in the hub. Uh, There's uh, lots of goodies there. And by the way, thank you to the amazing people who bake stuff for us every week. Like, seriously. (laughs) A greater clap for the bakers than for the worship team this morning. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, it's so good. So we're, we're so blessed. So hang out in the hub, get to know each other. And, uh, and have a chance to chat. And uh, if you need prayer this morning, if something's been stirring in you, maybe actually there's a cr- creative idea that's bubbled. Come and ask somebody to pray with you about it or something you, maybe you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time. Come and pray with somebody about that today. And the next Sunday, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, communion. We're going to gather to remember. So prepare your heart for that. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. You are the church of the living God. Go as a co-creating people for the purposes of him this week. Reflect him and keep your eyes open for how he wants to use you. Amen? Bless you.